Reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, to chapter 5, verse 10. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Thanks, uh, Freddie, very much for reading. Great to see you all here. Can I add my welcome to Claire? It was really lovely hearing from Ugbana just now as well. Thank you. Let's pray uh, as we come to God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for what we've already heard in this letter to the Hebrews, that your word is living and active and cuts uh, right to our hearts. And so we claim that promise today, uh, that please your word would cut uh, right to our hearts and souls, uh, that you'd encourage us, challenge us, change us draw us uh, close to Jesus, our great high priest. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, um, just a a quick refresher on um, uh, this letter and and the people that it was written to. Um, You may remember that they were converts to Christianity from Judaism, probably living in and around Rome. And the evidence that um, we see throughout the letter is that this group of Christians were in danger of drifting away from their newfound faith in Jesus Christ and going back to their old faith of Judaism. And one reason we see for this in the letter is uh, persecution. They are um, being targeted for being followers of this new unofficial religion of Christianity. So persecution is one reason for their drifting. Another reason uh, that we get for this drifting comes in verse 15 at the uh, the beginning of our passage today. If you take a look look at it, um, they were experiencing temptation to sin. And in their weakness, they were casting around for an answer about what to do. And uh, they were thinking perhaps the answer was to go back to the familiar rituals of their Jewish faith sacrifices, the high priests, the temple, as a sort of secure and tangible way of knowing God's forgiveness when they did sin. 
And it also looks like they missed the, the sympathy and the reassurance provided by the high priest under the Old Testament law. So you'll see in verse 2 of chapter 5, it refers to the fact that the high priest in Judaism provided comfort to the people in their struggles because he too struggled with the same weaknesses as they did. So perhaps they were missing the system, uh, perhaps they were missing the sympathy of, of the high, high priest. And for us, even if we're not tempted particularly to go back to a system of uh, sacrifices and high priests like they were, I think there are temptations here that are common to all humanity. All of us can too easily put our faith in the practice of religion rather than coming to God himself for grace and forgiveness. And the message that the writer has for the original Jewish readers and I think for us today is don't get stuck in this practice of religion but come to Jesus himself, our great high priest as he's described in this passage. And I just want to dwell for a few moments now on two qualities about Jesus that make him this true great high priest. It's that he's perfect in obedience and that he's perfect in sympathy. So first, he's perfect in obedience. And in order to get a sense for why he's perfect as our great high priest, we need to first understand what was the role of the high priest in the Old Testament. You'll see in verse 1 of chapter 5, the writer reminds his readers that the high priest's job was to be the representative of the people in matters related to God, and in particular to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And the high priest and the whole sacrificial system were a powerful picture to God's people of some really vital facts. Their sins were a barrier between them and God. A substitute or a sacrificial animal needed to die in their place to receive, for them to receive forgiveness. A high priest was required to carry it out uh, much of the time. And if they had faith that God would take away their sins through that sacrifice, that sacrifice would be effective for them. I think it's important for us to realise that the Old Testament system of sacrifice wasn't some great big fiction where God told his people to go through all these sacrificial procedures, but actually, in reality, they weren't really forgiven. It's quite easy as Christians to kind of think, oh, there was some sort of bad old system in the Old Testament that didn't really work, and so then God did, came up with a new idea through Jesus. No, it, it did work, but it was the way in which it worked. Because they had to understand that they were, they were only truly forgiven when they... They trusted in the reality to which the sacrifices uh, pointed, that God promised mercy. They didn't know exactly how that mercy was provided, but God truly promised mercy through sacrifice. But there were still questions that were there. How, how could an animal actually properly take the place of a human being and somehow take away sins? And also, what about the high priest? Because verses 2 and 3 remind us that this, this high priest was sinful himself. He, he had to make sacrifices for his own sins. So the high priest was a representative, but he was a clearly a, re a flawed representative. He couldn't go into God's actual presence. So this whole system of sacrifice and priesthood 
still left big questions. Where was the true sacrifice that was truly going to bring us into God's presence? And where was that truly obedient high priest who could really represent us and be there for us in God's presence? Those, for a sort of Jewish reader, those are the kind of big questions as you come to the end of the Old Testament. And that's why verses 7 to 10 in our passage is so explosive if you have the depth of that background. Because listen to what they claim about Jesus. Verse 7, Jesus lived a life of reverent submission to God. Verse 8, he was always obedient to God throughout his life, even unto death. Verse 9, that phrase, once made perfect, it, it doesn't mean gradual moral improvement in his life. The Greek word that it translates um, has the sense more of once he completed his life of obedience. And so as a result of this life of perfect obedience, end of verse 9, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So do you see how amazing this is? That the writer is actually claiming that this Jesus Christ lived a life of perfect obedience. He didn't need to make sacrifices for his own sins like the Old Testament high priest needed to. So actually he's a true high priest who can actually give us eternal salvation. Or to put it in the words of chapter 4 verse 14, just going back to the beginning... In him we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, into the very presence of God for us. So here's the point uh, of the writer uh, to his original Jewish hearers and to us. Why would you go back to trusting in a high priest who is weak like you and can't go into God's presence like you can't? When you have right before you the real thing that this high priest pointed towards. Now we'll, we'll learn more about this in the coming weeks because the writer develops this argument. But he keeps explaining that the Old Testament system of sacrifice and high priests was designed by God as a picture, a great big picture, a signpost, if you like, pointing us to the real sacrifice and the, of Christ and the real high priest of Christ. A signpost to a reality. Think about it like this way. If you're yeah, somewhere else in the country, you want to get to London, you get on the motorway and um, you start getting closer to London and then, and then you see up on the great blue sign, London, you know, M40 or something. It, when you get to that sign, you don't suddenly pull over onto the hard shoulder, assuming it's not a smart motorway, <laughs> pull onto the hard shoulder um, get out a picnic and kind of go great, you know, uh, in front of the sign of uh, saying to London, how exciting! It's a sign to London. Now you, you you carry on, don't you? You actually go to the reality that is London. You don't stop at the sign. And this is what the the writers wanting to get them to do. The high priest, the system of sacrifice, was a, it was a signpost pointing to the reality that was Christ. So how does that apply to us today? Well, perhaps the performance of certain church rituals, such as baptism, communion, church attendance itself, can make us feel that we can receive forgiveness just by participating in the rituals themselves. 
Or perhaps even, I'm not sure about this, we take comfort in our religious leaders somehow, that they're somehow um, helpful representatives for, for us. You know, they're, they're flawed, but at least they can give us comfort that because they're failing, then we're all in it together. And let's, you know, let's fail together. But all these, these things, they're only signs. They're, they're, they're supposed to point us to the reality, which is Christ. He's the one who's led this life of perfect obedience for us. He's gone all the way into heaven for us. So if all that's true, the writer says, verse 14, hold fast, hold fast to our faith in him, because he is the one who is perfect in obedience for us. And second, he's also perfect in sympathy. Verse, verse 2 of chapter 5. The, the Old Testament um, high priest um, was able to strengthen people because he was, he was one of them. He was subject to weakness. He, he could be truly sympathetic. And we get that, don't we? He, he was a fellow traveller. When you're struggling with something in life, you, you want to go to the person who's suffered something similar, don't you? Who's travelled the same path, who's been truly sympathetic. I found myself talking and praying with someone recently he was, who's been going through a really difficult time and it, it made all the difference in the world to them to know that I'd been through a similar experience myself a few years ago. That they knew that I truly sympathised. So when we're struggling we don't go to Mr or Mrs Perfect who apparently seem to have no struggles or problems in life, do we? We, we, we go... We want to go to someone who we know truly sympathises. But, but isn't that just the problem with Jesus, though? Isn't he Mr. Perfect? He can't actually really understand or sympathise with us in our struggles. Because he, if he is this great high priest and, and lives a life of perfect obedience, what would he actually know about the struggles and temptations that we face in life? Well... Everything and more, says the writer in 4 verse 15, if you just cast your eyes back to that verse. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So do you see here, the test of sympathy is not um, experience of sin, but it's experience of temptation. And it's precisely because Jesus has been tempted to the limit and not actually given in to sin that means that he's actually been, if you think about it, he's been tested way more than any of us ever do because we give in as soon as it gets hard. C.S. Lewis, I think, made a really helpful um, observation uh, of this. This is what he, he writes. No person knows how bad they are until they've tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of an army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A person who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a very sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try and fight it. And Christ, 
because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is therefore the only man who truly knows to the full what temptation means. Have you ever thought that about Christ? That means he really, really can sympathise. Do you feel overwhelmed by temptation at the moment? Well, so was he. Think of him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was sorrowful to the point of death and asked the Father to take away the cup of uh, his, his wrath away from him. We have a great high priest who is not distant from us, but who became one of us and who perfectly sympathises with us. And as a result of this, he stands ready all the time, verse 16, to give us grace in our time of need. So the next time when you're, you're battling with temptation, will you actually take Jesus at his word on this? Take up this amazing promise and, and see how he delivers. Actually ask for his help. Because if, if we don't, we are basically like that drowning person in the sea who gets thrown the, the life ring, but actually says, oh, no, thanks very much, I'll just, um, I can manage really well by myself. They're not, not receiving the help that's being offered. So as we conclude, what should our response be to this great high priest who's being described here? Did you see there are two let us, let us is, in verses 14 and 16 of chapter 4. The first, let us, focuses on Jesus, the great high priest, perfect in obedience. He's, he's led the perfect life for us. He's become the source of eternal salvation for us. He's gone all the way into heaven for us. He is our true representative. So let us hold fast to him and not to the things that point to him. And second, the second let us in verse 16 focuses on Jesus, this great high priest, perfect in sympathy. He promises, he promises to give us his compassionate grace to keep going every step of the way through this life. It's the promise of eternity and the promise of help in the present. So for all of us, let's approach God's throne of grace today with confidence. And why don't we ask for God's help now in prayer as we close that we might do that. Let's, can I invite us to pray together? Heavenly Father, we, you promised to, to give us mercy. And so we, we pray, help us to trust in Jesus, our great high priest, perfect in obedience for us, so that we might receive your mercy. And you also promise here to give us grace in our time of need. In whatever temptations we are struggling with at the moment, please help us to remember that Jesus has been tempted way beyond uh, what we ever are. He went all the way to death for us. He truly sympathises and promises to give us grace now in our time of need. And that we ask that we might receive that.
in his name. Amen.